Hey guys, I'm Dr. Richard Johnson, director of the Booker T. Washington Initiative at the Texas Public Policy Foundation and your host of the State of Black America podcast. Join me as we discuss the principles of freedom, entrepreneurship, and self-reliance with thought leaders across America. And good afternoon. We're here today and we're talking with Dr. Michelle Martin uh, with LSU, Louisiana State University. Uh, Ms. Martin, we're going to talk, Dr. Martin, we're going to talk a little bit about the impact of COVID virus on higher education and the service delivery. And uh, I want to talk to you about uh, enrollment management because you have a very vast uh, experience, reservoir of experience. Uh, on uh, higher education, particularly with enrollment management, financial aid, uh, student support services, and student success services, as well as higher education budgets. But let's start in right now with enrollment management. How do you see COVID-19 and the shutdown uh, impacting higher education uh, recruitment? Well, COVID is really affecting um, higher education recruitment in a major way. Typically, colleges and universities um, will send representatives out to physically meet with students at such events such as um, college fairs, university open houses, and, you know, just various events throughout their city or state. Um, Because of COVID, that can't happen anymore, or at least not for right now. Um, so these institutions are going to have to try to um, contact students and communicate with them and their parents through other avenues. And so some of those ways um, that they can communicate or they're finding to communicate would be through Zoom, um, GroupMe, emails, phone consultations, um, webinars as such, and even social, uh, the various social media channels such as Facebook, Instagram, and social media meetups and even their school websites. Yeah, I'm looking at I'm looking at first generation students. Uh-huh. And they tend to live with a grandparent who does not have uh, access to internet and they 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 generally don't have the devices such as a a laptop uh, or, or or smart devices where they can actually do a lot of communicating. How is that going to impact uh, recruiting that particular that particular vulnerable population uh, in our communities? Uh, it impacts it in that yes, students may not have access to computers um, and not necessarily internet access. So universities will have to find other ways in order to um, contact those students and you know meet the needs of the student so that they can you know communicate their, you know, information. So for instance, um, student, all students have a cell phone. Most students do. Um, and on those phones would be internet access. So they're going to um, have to figure out how to utilize uh, technology in such a way to reach those students, reach them where they are, which might mean to uh, find ways to communicate to students in the social media avenues that they're using. Um, and sometimes just go back to go back to some old school tricks, such as set up phone banks and phone trees using help from alumni, students and current, you know, and staff 
and just plain old calling people. So it seems like we're we're gonna be we're gonna be challenged to to utilize technology a lot more in a in, in a more efficient way uh, that's more geared toward uh, our mission, the the universities, colleges, and universities' mission, as opposed to being a second uh, a second tool of mm-hmm. use the way that was done traditionally. Yes, sir. Most definitely. Um, students use, they regularly use technology. They leverage it very, very well. And so um, faculty and staff at universities, because historically we have not been open to utilizing these tools, um, we're now having to utilize them. <laughs> and exactly. so we're going to, which places the faculty and staff at a disadvantage. So it's very important that we work over the, the summertime and and the, the current the rest of this current spring semester in order to get adept at using those tools. Because by the time the fall starts, it's when we're gonna be on and we're gonna need to be on point. And I, I see a situation occurring here, Dr. Martin, where mm-hmm. uh, you never get a hundred percent of anything. Yes, and and so when you look, when I'm looking in my crystal ball at at faculty and staff, and uh, them being able to transition uh, into this new normal, utilizing technology as a as a first a first tier uh, prime target tool for every aspect of higher education, uh, I I would probably say about. 60% will be able to, to make the transition, about 40% will struggle in making mm-hmm. the transition, and maybe about 10% will not make the transition at all. What are your thoughts? Um, for me, it's pretty hard to put some hard numbers to it. I know several universities, some will have tools. Everyone's going to have a different infrastructure, and they're going to have to analyze their, their infrastructure and figure out from where they are. Um, typically I would say from the period of February, March, you know, we've been rushing, everyone has typically rushed to zoom if they didn't have, uh, the infrastructure in place, you know, to easily transition to an online platform. Um, and then now that that's been in place for about four weeks, um, they're now trying to add the basics back to it, basically trying to, you know, shift to, shift from more than just handling the pure emergency delivery, they're trying to fully address the question of, you know, providing quality uh, to the online delivery of courses. So um, it's hard to put a number on it because I'm not really sure on, and this is just my opinion, I'm not really sure on how many uh, universities were actually ready for online delivery. I do know the majority of them are not. Mm-hmm. Remote learning and teaching is something that's very different than online delivery. So, you have to, online delivery is really thought out and designed with a lot of thought in, in place. So it's basically, it's just unlikely. There would be any kind of normal. So I guess I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of, um, I know there's a reasonable likelihood that many schools will probably remain with some uh, level or degree of online learning. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I could also see there's going to probably be, you know, watching the news, there might be a, another rapid transition to online if we reach a second peak of COVID outbreak. So we just have to see. Yeah, one of the, one of the things uh, I've spoken with several uh, historically black college presidents mm-hmm. at small liberal arts colleges, and they were not prepared to make this uh, this steep of a shift into online learning or online engagement with recruitment and mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, enrollment management. And so for those schools, what are you thinking in terms of them being able to put in uh, technological infrastructures that will be able to make the shift on, into online learning and recruitment? Universities are going to have to be very creative in, in their next moves, um, particularly because in terms of recruiting, they need to keep communication open with students, their faculty, their staff, even their prospective students they're interested in recruiting. Um, In terms of trying to be prepared for online learning on a continual basis, and they don't, it takes a lot of funds. It's a lot of money that you have to, a large investment that you have to make. Um, And just dealing with this pandemic it's also going to be a large investment. Every institution is not going to be the same. Their situations are not the same. And so they're just going to have to make the best uh, decision for the variables that each institution has to deal with. Let me ask you a question. We're looking at what we call the new normal. Uh And and, and if we could look ahead and, and be a little forward thinking, you know, what does the new normal look like for for higher ed, and I always take the most difficult cases uh, to look at, and that, that's the most vulnerable populations. For those students who are first-time, first-generation students coming out of uh, economically, uh, socioeconomic uh, areas of, of urban America where the dollars are not, are not good, funding's not there, uh, the the public schools are not the best in terms of preparing them uh, for college or careers. Mm-hmm. Where what is it? What does higher ed look like reaching that student? I think several. Th- there are going to be several changes in areas such as like student affairs, um, those advising and student services. Support offices are are going to take a turn. Their areas are going to take a turn as well, um, and that's because students are going to need more access for you know campus support networks now more than ever. Um, and so, as you said, some students may not have access to computers or tablets that are needed for the online learning. Um, I also think they could encounter other logistical barriers, and so um, it will be easier now for those type of students to fall, you know, for their issues to fall through the cracks than ever. So, um, and even uh, something that just crossed my mind was even the adjustment from a face to, you know, being a student in a face-to-face course and being moved now to a virtual environment, that's going to also, just that adjustment itself uh, can be tough. So, um, mm-hmm. 
we cannot assume that students will seemingly just adjust to this change. And so there needs to be some support services put in place to assist them with that transition. Um, so it's important that stu- you know universities monitor the challenges that students are facing uh, in order to identify ways that the institution itself could better support their students and their educational success. One of the long-term criticisms of, of online learning, teaching and learning has been uh, the fact that the faculty member is not present there uh, in the same physiological space with the students. So they can't tell whether or not the student is actually uh, getting or receiving additional help outside of of what they should be. How is the faculty going to address that? Well, that's with, um, you know, thoughtful uh, work put in to designing that course. Um, Faculty and students are typically used to synchronous uh, courses. It's nothing wrong with an asynchronous course if it's uh, built properly. So a lot of thought just has to be taken into transitioning courses from uh, the on the on ground delivery face to face to online delivery. And are we are we relying solely on the students' uh, honor system <clears throat> to to do the work themselves and not have someone else do the work for them, or or take the test? without using some additional aids that cannot be picked up by the uh, the the laptop cam while they're doing it? Um, well, you could say yes, and I will say yes and. <laughs> <laughs> Good, because that's one of the bigger arguments that I hear from faculty members all the time is that someone else is going to be doing the work for them or they're going to have their smartphone somewhere where the where the faculty member cannot see it, uh, even if they're on Zoom, and they're going to be you know the smartest kid in the in the classroom, mm-hmm. but they're looking down on the answers, uh, gaining them gaining those answers from somewhere else. Gotcha. So um, universities have other tools. Uh, so, for instance, a, a, a professor could set up for their test or their exam to be proctored. You know, use certain use companies such as uh, Examine or Proctor U, and you know have their exams proctored. So there are ways around that. Explain how that works. How 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 can they proctor those exams and uh, and not be in that physical space? Um, well, you know, I guess the university would typically set up a contract with one of those companies, and they have different options or different option packages that institutions use for, and they can set things up for faculty members. So if a faculty member would like for, um, let's say a final exam and maybe one other exam available, let's say midterm and a final, uh, to be proctored, they could set it up so that you have an actual physical person come to a specific location and proctor that student or, uh, or even technologically that student logs in and they can actually watch through a webcam and watch that student take an exam. Let's shift gears a little bit, Dr. Martin. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's a lot of talk about uh, refunding the students for the spring uh, semester. 
uh, on their uh, room and board and meal plans. Now, some big, some wealthy colleges like uh, Harvard University that has a forty-one billion dollar endowment can do that fairly simple. But what about uh, struggling, financially struggling universities and colleges uh, across America, bear, uh, staring down that particular barrel? How is that going to impact their budgets? Ooh. Uh, it's going to impact their budget in quite a big way. Um, I would I would start off by saying, you know, their funds such as tuition, endowments, and even their grant contract funds, these funds are threatened um, because now institutions, they should be seeing an increased demand for their financial aid as the economic fallout starts to hit family budgets. Um there's several negative budget impacts that are hitting both private and public institutions. And so because of this situation, you know, universities and colleges will have to do more than just tighten their belts um, because the financial implications are still the full picture of the financial implications still remain unknown. But what is known right now is that it can be expected that uh, tuition and endowment revenue will decrease over the next few years. And, so universities will have to be more entrepreneurial in adapting their business model and managing expenditures. Okay, the Department of Education has has uh, basically set aside for higher education fourteen billion dollars mm-hmm. to provide uh, COVID nineteen aid relief uh, to higher ed, and about one billion to uh, historically black colleges and and uh, Hispanic-serving institutions. Mm-hmm. And so that I see that creating an opportunity to offset some of the impact of the, of the colleges and universities having to refund uh, students for, for room and board and, and, and meal plans. Now, this will be a check going to, into students' pockets, so that ought to be pretty good. Uh, However, if the if the if the colleges and universities had planned on that that money in their budgets, they're going to have to make an adjustment. And I don't know whether or not the 14 billion uh, will be enough to offset that uh, expense in their budget, that revenue in their budget uh, for colleges and universities. What are your thoughts? I agree with you. I don't think that 14 billion is going to be enough. And so. Um, I'm sure many university administrators are modeling various scenarios. They're bearing in mind variables such as the duration of this crisis, the financial market activity and conditions of the market, um, other signals of economic health, and, of course, uh, the higher education choice trends that students and their families are going to be making in response to this pandemic. So, for instance, I know that... um, from where I work, you know, we've already curtailed some travel and we've suspended discretionary spending, instituted hiring freezes. Um, but there are other uh, other uh, activities that are measures, I should say, that universities could, would, would probably be looking at and taking, such as reviewing their construction, renovation projects and postponing some of those. Um, just basically examining all activities and trying to identify opportunities uh, to gain new efficiencies and maximize their results. And I'm sure they're going to be trying to do some restructuring and other organizational changes as such. So um, 
um, I, even as of yesterday, I read an article in Forbes where there's several several major universities have instituted uh, furloughs for their employees. Um, University of Arizona, for example, had announced a major massive furlough that's extending from May 11th through June 30th of 2021. So, um, and usually furloughs are used after belt tightening, met, you know, after the belt tightening measures have. So the belt has already been tightened in, 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 in Arizona, right? Correct. Furloughs are typically like the last dash, the last choice. Um, and they typically come before and they typically hope to prevent faculty furloughs and layoffs. You know, and of course, the dreaded, uh, you know, the dreaded announcement of a financial exigency. So, you know, it's one of the most severe financial interventions that a college will implement, you know, short of closure. Right. I'm really concerned about Mm -hmm. the historically black colleges and universities that are Mm -hmm. on the private sector side, simply because they they tend to operate off of very, very small margins on a normal basis. Now that this COVID-19 situation has occurred, it's thrown them into what I call a perfect storm. And Mm -hmm. And I don't really know how they're going to come out of this perfect storm without uh, a significant amount of help uh, coming from uh, coming from the uh, COVID-19 relief fund. Right. And the discretionary support that the governors are able to take with some of those resources to help the most vulnerable uh, institutions. I think that these institutions Many of them were the first institutions of higher education for Af- for the African American community, mm-hmm. and uh, with with us bailing out Harvard with nine million dollars, uh, and we had and at the same time having small colleges, liberal arts colleges, and universities at the brink of closure permanently. I don't know if if we have the right formula in place. Yeah, that remains to be seen. Um, I think it's important that those institutions definitely uh, document and, uh, you know, keep working on their, uh, you know, their financial plan that they're, you know, modeling those various scenarios I talked about before, um, because this is a moving target. This situation is fluid and it's going to continue to change from day to day. Um, so, and, you know, and I don't know if it's going to mean that they would need to reach out to their donors. I'm sure uh, that, you know, another impact of, you know, that their donor capacity to support the university will also lessen. So mm-hmm. um, we have to figure out other ways of being entrepreneurial and figuring out um, we might have to lean on our continuing education programs a little bit more, you know, in order to bring some other dollars into the institution. And, and so what I hear you saying is that COVID-19 is really forcing what we call uh, an education reform uh, pattern or rethinking uh, mm-hmm. to come into play. We're, we're now going to have to start to rethink the way that we 
We do service delivery, just like we're going to have to rethink the way that we we bring in revenues into into the institutions. Most definitely. Definitely in agreement with that. They're going to have to. Um, as I said before, we have to be creative. And also, one of the things that, that the shutdown has done is it's, uh, it's actually stopped those small colleges and universities from doing any events. And most of, the, most of their funds that they, re, that they receive on the revenue side mm-hmm. comes from uh, fundraising events. So now they can't do any events physically. So what I'm hearing you say is maybe they need to figure out ways to do that with modern technology and do it virtually. Yes, most definitely. That's, that's the only way we're going. <laughs> we're going. They may have to do a fundraiser. I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, DJ D nice, but you know, he's been a DJ uh, on Instagram who regularly, uh, DJs on over the weekends for hours on end. And so many people across the country, I should say probably across the world have been uh, on his sites. And so not only is that a great idea, um, universities could jump right on that same bandwagon and, and also uh, host some of their events on Instagram, make it yeah, live so, and, and so make so it interactive. Look for, look for platforms, look for platforms that would allow them to, to reach out to the broader audience and, broader and, and make their appeal that way for additional resources. Yes. Hmm. That's a wonderful thought. Thank you so much, Dr. Martin. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking with us today. We've been able to gain a lot of information uh, that we can move forward and look at how we can advise from a policy standpoint our colleges and universities uh, in a way in which it will assist them in making the adjustment to the impact of COVID-19. This has <laughs> been a great opportunity for us to, to examine that information. And thank you for your expertise that you bring uh, to the discussion. And we look forward to continuing to talk with you as we go into the future. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today for this important discussion. If you want to get plugged in with the Booker T. Washington Initiative, head over to TexasPolicy.com or find us on Facebook by searching for the Booker T. Washington Initiative. See you next time and God bless.